1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, I am in Evansville, Indiana right now, uh, heading to Louisville, Kentucky tomorrow, or I think that's where it is, somewhere in the general Kentucky area, to speak for Alliance Coal, which is, as you might guess, a coal company. And um, I'm giving a talk there called How to Become a Coal Champion, And since coal is probably our most controversial means of generating electricity, and also our most in danger from the government means of generating electricity, I figured, well, actually I didn't really figure, it just happens to be the coincidence. For various reasons, I wanted to talk this week about electricity. We've never had a show on electricity, which is a little bit odd, given how important it is. Uh, We've talked about the different sorts of fuels that uh, that generate electricity, coal, oil, natural gas, nuclear, hydro, solar, wind, et cetera, uh, but never about that form of energy uh, itself. And it's a really fascinating form of energy, and, and it brings up issues all its own, for example. Uh, an electric grid, what exactly is that? How does it work? What are the challenges? How does that relate to, um, you know, what what sorts of energy are good for a grid? What sorts of energy are bad for a group. Many, many other questions. It's really, um, really fascinating aspect of energy long overdue. And to discuss it, uh, we're going to have um, electricity expert and friend of CIP, Travis Fisher. Now, Travis has a really interesting background since he's, uh, I remember reading some of his work and I thought he was very bright and he was super free market. So philosophically, we got along very well. And then I noticed where he had spent something like seven years working, which is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, F-E-R-C. And uh, so Travis always has to qualify that the views here he is expressing are not the views of FERC, which I think will be obvious to anyone who studies FERC and or who listens to uh, Travis. Uh, But anyway, it'll be really exciting to have him on the show uh, to talk about electricity, to get a bunch of basic questions answered and then more advanced questions answered And should be fun. So uh, we'll talk to you on the other side.
0: Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: All right, we are joined by Travis Fisher. Travis, welcome to Power Hour.
2: Thanks for having me, Alex.
1: Um, Now, it sounds like Travis is on a cell phone which is not the greatest for radio slash podcast, but he's got really good stuff to say, so we're not going to let that uh, technology get in the way. First thing, uh, or today and we're going to talk about electricity, and it's funny because electricity is such a fundamental thing in life, and we've talked about it only indirectly, uh, but today we're going to talk about it directly, including things like the electric grid. Uh, but the first thing is, and this, this comes up just from my experience talking to people Can you talk about the difference between fuel and electricity? Because often people talk about the electric car instead of the oil-powered car, and it's like they think that there's some separate fuel called electricity, which is just totally clean and never has any problems. So how would you introduce such a person to what electricity actually is?
2: Uh, Well, that's a great question, and I, I can admit to being ignorant of that same line of thinking when I was, say, in college and then when I started working at Um, The thing that struck me was the many different ways that you can generate electricity. I know now that say there's no such thing as an electric car because the things that go into generating electricity, in the U.S. you have everything from you burn coal to produce heat to boil water, and then the steam goes through a turbine and turns, and you use electromagnetism, and it's a very beautiful thing, but at the end of the day, you're just boiling water. So that's the same for uh, coal. Natural gas has a lot of the same qualities. Uh, you're just trying to turn turbines. So there's a bunch of different ways to do that. Um,
1: okay, but in, terms, a of, lot of in terms of the... Uh, but I mean... So that's, that's partially just, that's the mechanism of a heat engine, right? That, I mean, you're essentially, you're turning heat into motion. And one of the major mechanisms in these things is, you know, uh, some sort of working fluid and steam. Uh, but in terms mm-hmm. of the, the sources, it's just, it's, uh, one, one guy I talked to calls it the coal. It's, it's not an electric car, it's a coal car. Or it's, it's a exactly. gas car.
2: Exactly. Um, I don't have the newest stats in front of you, but something like, uh, between 40 and 50% of our electricity is generated by coal. So, yeah, if you're driving an electric car, the source of that energy was actually, you know, the dead plants that got compressed into coal. So it's it's not as if you can drive a 100% clean car, quote-unquote, because, um, first of all, you have no idea where the electricity came from if you're just plugging your car into a socket in your garage. Um, tell know, where that power came onto the AC grid and then it just gets scattered and then uh, ends up at your house. Um, so there's no way there's no way to be one hundred percent sure that you weren't running your car on say coal or nuclear or gas.
1: Well and of course there'd be nothing wrong uh I mean to say the least, there'd be nothing wrong with that. And it's it's just striking to me how how high up this goes in terms of people have PhDs and, and know this: a friend of mine, whom I won't name because uh, then it would implicate her family, but has a very educated uh, father and very educated relatives, and they were just—I think—they were talking about oil or coal or something like that. And at some point, she pointed out, like, "Well, you know, you know, you're using it for ele- electricity," and I think they just thought that we use fossil fuels for gasoline. Mm-hmm. Like that—that that was the—that was the extent of it, and. Electricity comes from the wall,
2: um, yeah, and I guess I guess the question to ask because clearly the, the goal is to break down some sort of fallacy that they've built up. I don't know what their vision of electricity is, but I guess the first thing to do would be to ask them where they think electricity comes from and go from there.
1: yeah, no, I mean that, that yeah in terms of I think I think one just more philosophical point that this raises and this this leads to a more in-depth exp- uh um exploration of energy is that producing energy is an achievement you mentioned the steps of pro- uh, the you know the multiple uh different processes that go into uh you know generating any kind of electricity i think it's just noteworthy that this isn't something that people have had you know we take for granted that we can uh plug in an iphone and it'll get charged and yet a, we weren't very good at generating energy for most of human history, and then B, we certainly weren't generate, um, good at generating this form of electricity called uh, energy called electricity. What is so mm-hmm. special about uh, electricity? Because it really is a special thing.
2: Uh, well, I think there's a ton of reasons. But I think the, the thing that you're getting at is that it's ubiquitous now in modern society because it does so many different things. When, say, for example, Samuel Insull was helping Thomas Edison build out some of the first uh, central plants they were doing, I think they were using DC at first, but uh, the goal was to replace gas as the source of lighting at night. So that was sort of the initial for us. It was just for lighting. Uh, and then it got, I mean, it, it didn't take long for people to realize how useful this was. You can power a motor with it. You can run factories on it. And then there's this beautiful harmony between lighting at night and using mechanical sort of like factory motors during the day, and in that sense, you could keep your generators running basically nonstop, providing light at night and power during the day, you know, for whatever factory you had going on, and that was an observation that Insole and Edison made really early on, and I think it was just almost immediate that this was going to be the fuel, quote unquote, it wasn't the original fuel, but it, it's just so useful; it ends up everywhere. And now you have electronics that can run without it. I mean, it's, uh, it's well, pretty fascinating. T- the way.
1: Can you talk about the precision of it? Because that it seems to be a lot of what is allowed. Like, what I can't think of any form of. I mean, as great as an internal combustion engine is, I can't see it, you know, in some way you powering a computer chip with something like that.
2: Uh well, I mean, it's, it's incredibly complicated when you think about today's alternating current grid. Um, the whole thing is basically on a 60-hertz cycle, so that's the alternating part, is that current alternates 60 times a second. But, uh, and I'm not an electrical engineer. I'll leave that discussion for someone else. But the beauty of it is, is that it's a really powerful way to get electricity on... Of mass scale, so you have these giant coal plants, for example, that generate so much electricity, and you can spread it far and wide on this AC transmission grid, mostly because of AC's quality of being able to be stepped up and stepped down, so that the same amount of power, uh, you have this watts equals volts times amps. So you have you can step up the voltage to incredible levels and you actually decrease the loss on the line so You can move electricity very far in that way. So,
1: okay. Well, um, let's, let's, let's jump back. Just, I mean, we don't have to get into super engineering, but just, uh, you know, quick 30 second version of alternating current mm-hmm. versus direct current. Cause this is a huge uh, decision. Uh, and I mean, it still is in the history of electricity.
2: Yeah. For the most part, that's, that battle was won a long time ago. Uh, Actually, found Edison on the losing end of that. Direct um, current wasn't really scalable, is the short version of the story. Um, alternating current is scalable to an amazing degree. Um, most of the eastern U.S. is on one single AC grid. I don't know if people, I certainly didn't know about this before I started working at FERC, work, but there's three separate AC grids that comprise the U.S. Texas is kind of alone. Then there's a split between the east and the west.
1: There's only three, so, really?
2: Yeah, and that and that's the scale of the AC grid. Uh, you could put power on in one part, take it off in another, and you would have no idea where what exactly where where that electron came from. And I think there's there's a lot of interesting points to that. There's some policy implications of that and everything else, but it's just a fascinating physical uh, phenomenon to think about.
1: So, how what would be? I mean, what, what if you tried? Um doing that using direct current, how far, how far could it go? Because you mentioned the issue of loss. I mean, anything is going to diminish over certain distances. How quickly does the direct current diminish?
2: Uh, well, I think, was, I think Edison was able to do parts of New York City on a direct current basis. But I think his plan would have included multiple plants just in, say, southern Manhattan. So that's, that's sort of the scale, very small. Uh, as opposed to uh, the original, one of the first AC plans was to build a massive hydro plant at Niagara Falls that would power, say, all the way to New York City that way. Instead of, instead of embedding dozens of plants throughout New York City, you could generate the power far away and transmit it in.
1: So let's let's look at this thing called the grid, because we hear about the grid and then there we can get into certain controversies about smart grids and, and whatnot. But we talk about smart grids, which I think is a not a good euphemism, but I don't think most of us even know what a grid is and why we use it. And let's look at it from the perspective of the base case. I and mean, when you first start you know discovering that you can uh you know generate electricity, that you can turn something like coal uh not just into steam, but into electricity. You no, know, it seems logical. Why can't we all power our own houses from our own coal plant or our own uh, gas plant or our own windmill?
2: Right. I think that gets back to the, the scalability. So the scale economies of, say, large central plants. And I think that was another genius contribution from Samuel Insull, who started building these central plants and he would. You would basically be able to to power whole areas just based on one one plant, and that's just imagine uh, the difference between, for example, uh, the efficiency of you know a, a coal plant versus a diesel generator. Um, what you find is, so the the amount of fuel you'd have to use to for the diesel generator would just be prohibitively expensive. It, it just wouldn't it wouldn't make economic sense so it was definitely driven by economics and it was driven by economies of scale and has to do with uh, just the ability to generate a massive amounts of electricity from these central plants
1: okay so that I mean, this this is something that obviously exists in a lot of different fields this this need for um, or, or just the desire to to leverage certain economies of scale which brings the price within reach of a lot of people. But let's talk a little bit about just how a grid works, because you mentioned earlier this idea, and I don't know if people caught it, but that there was a certain symmetry and a fortunate symmetry between running things during the day uh, with a certain amount of electricity and then light, you know, putting on the lights at night. Why is that kind of symmetry important? What is it about? Because You know, when you drive your car, you don't worry about symmetry, right? You don't need to use it in the... You can use it any time, as much as you want, and and there are no consequences. And yet, with the electric grid, there is an issue of making sure you use it certain amounts at certain times or making sure there's certain amounts of electricity at certain times.
2: Exactly. So in terms of the the AC grid, supply and demand always have to be balanced. And sort of electricity geeks talk about... uh, Supply and load, I'm not sure why load ended up being the term for demand, but anyways, you, you have to essentially, every time a light comes on, every time you draw power from the grid, there's a generator somewhere that's going to generate just a little bit more um, and there's I know there's a dynamic there where because it has to be constantly balanced, that's sort of that's what makes the uh the operations level stuff kind of fun to talk about. And there is some harmony still. There is still some, you know, quote-unquote, load at night. But in general, that load curve, sort of the the usage pattern of the average region, doesn't look the same as it did, say, in Edison's time because most people have air conditioners now. And that's sort of the game changer. And I know the, the people who say, look, listen to Power Hour probably phrase that. I I phrase that as a technological advantage, advance too. But then there's there's these slight complications where you get these spikes on really hot days where the AC grid is pretty much it's stretched as far as it can go in terms of supplying electricity to run air conditioners. And that to tie it into sort of a real world example. That's why on the hottest days that's why there's a risk of blackout and that's why you'll occasionally see alerts or something similar saying So you could just take your thermostat up just a little bit. It would would help the grid. It's really good with the grid, things like that. Um, So you'll actually see uh, if you follow load curves over time, sort of as people, as air conditioning got to be more of an everyday thing, um, you did get, especially in the warmer regions, you'd have a big, huge difference between, say, mid-afternoon load and middle-of-the-night load.
1: Um. Okay, but I mean, there's a couple. There's the physical aspect of that is interesting. We'll get to it in a minute in terms of what what causes uh, a blackout and what a problem that is. But in terms of the load curve, it just seems like well, build more power plants and then pick the kind of power plants that are the most efficient uh, to adjust, you know, to cycle up and down.
2: Exactly. So there's the uh, load-following plants. There's, there's terms like uh, You'll have a peaking unit. So you'll have a unit that doesn't run very often but will just match peak load. And uh, those can be kind of expensive if, if you can imagine uh, not running a plant for most of the time and only needing it occasionally. Um, that's another long story that we could get into. But in general, it's not, it's not even as simple as just building one of those plants because, again, you have to, you have to have the transmission infrastructure to get from the plant to the people, so um, so is that is that the to,
1: limiting factor that there's not enough transit transmission lines.
2: Uh, that's certainly one of them. Um, I feel like there's a strong element of policy here too, though, where say for example, um, I think wind is especially bad at this. It because your peak load is afternoons, you know, mid summer, mid afternoon. Uh, and because historically, that's just not when the wind blows very hard. Um, it's a question of what resources you had and what transmission you had based on the resources. So, uh, to the extent that we're building new transmission, most people are talking about to accommodate wind, but that doesn't that doesn't necessarily get at the the peak load problem.
1: Okay, in terms of in terms of just what what's going on here. I just want to to pause on how remarkable it is to be able to balance supply and demand in this way, because this isn't you know balancing supply and demand in for Twinkies in your 7 eleven where you know more or less it 's not that at all, uh, although that has a beauty of it uh, in itself in terms of the price system and, and other things but I mean this is moment by moment so what happens i mean how does a blackout work what what's going on with supply and demand when a a blackout happens because i think it's remarkable that it doesn't happen or it takes quite a bit of ingenuity for it not to happen more often
2: uh yeah i mean the fact that blackouts are so rare i think that kind of contributes to people's feeling that electricity is just always always there always reliable and for the most part it is um so again i'll say I'm, i'm no engineer but when you have basically voltage swings high enough in either direction. Um, let's say as an example, uh, a tree falls on a power line. I believe that's what was determined to have caused a 2003 blackout. Um, there was just too much tree near a, a power line. And then that line tripped off. Then it sort of set off the series of automatic. Uh, it's just like when you blow a fuse, I guess. So, these automatic triggers and it just rippled all the way through the northeast. Um, So it is, it's a very tricky thing. and A lot of people take it for granted, but there really are people in control rooms balancing, actively balancing every second of every day supply and demand. And they, they're very good at forecasting what demand's going to be uh, and planning ahead and making sure that the supply is going to be available. But when there's unforeseen events when lines go out, when generating units go out, uh, I guess if there was an unforeseen spike in demand, it would do the same thing. So, but there, there's, there's, there is a lot of science and a lot of, a lot of effort that that goes unnoticed.
1: And that, that I think is a good segue into what are called renewables and what I call unreliables, uh, solar and wind, because mm-hmm. there's, there's a. A self-proclaimed study, I've become wary of the term study because it usually just means speculation uh, by someone or concoction, uh, but there's this guy Jacobson from Stanford who's made a name for himself by creating these central plans of uh, of how uh, the unreliables can power everything. We'll, we'll get into the central planning aspect in a minute, but just just if we think about it, if there's all this precision it's just how in the – on its face, it just seems like the most absurd thing in the world to rely on an unreliable source for something that is so precise. It's different if you're heating your pool. There's not as much of a downside if you don't get it quite right, and it's the kind of thing that can aggregate and that changes slowly. You know, Electricity is either there uh, or it isn't. And if it isn't in the right way, everything can crash. So I mean, what's the plausibility of – when people talk about, oh, 60% of, or 70% or 80% can be powered by solar and wind and everything will work great. Right?
2: Uh, I think that gets to the heart of a, a pretty fundamental issue of just, is it an engineering possibility or is it economically rational? Uh, you, usually when you read those studies, it has a lot to do... like. There's a remarkable amount of uninvented technology being used in those studies. (laughs) That's a Uh,
1: great great term, by the way, uninvented technology. For
2: for example, you'll hear things like utility-scale storage. And at the same time, if you read the news, you'll hear about bankruptcies and A123 systems and other companies that were designed to fill this niche. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it cost-effectively. So there's a huge difference between this centrally planned, a very technocratic way of approaching the electric grid. And I, I guess if you, if you sunk enough money into it and you didn't care how much electricity cost, you could do some of these things. You could build out enough wind to basically meet average load and then have enough storage in different capacities, batteries or pumped hydro storage is different ways to do it. Um, Cause you can't directly store electricity either. Store it in a, a chemical reaction, like a battery where you store the potential energy and say falling water, but long story short, you can't store electricity. So a lot of this, these studies that talk about massive amounts of renewables that you can use, um, it's really it, it it relies on something that just hasn't been proven. Number one, and is just super expensive. So I I'm also really skeptical of these studies. I I tend to skim them and I just see that oh they're talking about. Storage and demand response and other like things that just haven't really made a dent at all.
1: And, and I think that applies to more micro levels too, in terms of implementation. Even if even if you had a good, reliable, even with with sound technologies that even work. I mean, this is something that doesn't even physically work. There's nothing physically remotely resembling this quote unquote possible thing because even once you have that there's huge jumps to make it economic and then there's huge jumps to implement it in different contexts it's not like every region is the same and you need new kinds of equipment and then there's just the the i don't think there's an appreciation of of how much thinking went into things working now it's not that someone just Mm -hmm. came up with something in a lab and then it worked forever i mean there's a reason why we all have jobs why there are a lot of people mm-hmm. who have jobs in the electricity industry, and it's because this stuff is really difficult. So this idea of, I like you call it, uninvented technology, mm-hmm. the idea that that, that that is it's legitimate for someone to mention a whole bunch of uninvented technologies, and which are also unapplied technologies and uneconomic technologies, and call that a plan, and then be considered morally superior to the people actually producing the electricity is... Uh, this is a sad state of affairs
2: I agree, and i haven 't been on the operation side of the electric grid um, anytime I've talked to anyone who's on the operation side of the grid i 'm um, always fascinated by it they they really are experts, and i guess I guess the trouble is if it it could be trouble it wouldn't it wouldn't be trouble without the kind of policies that are trying to be implemented on top of this, but I guess there' they're they're too good. They've done too good of a job, and people have taken them for granted. And I think in sort of a – I don't wish bad things on sort of the next era of electricity grid. but it is going to be interesting when, when these policies do come into effect, say, state renewable portfolio standards and things like that, and there are operational problems. People are going to start asking those questions, but they just don't know enough about the grid to ask those questions now. They definitely didn't know enough about the grid to ask those questions before those policies were were passed at the state level.
1: Yeah, it's just one one kind of fun thought for me because I've been thinking about it lately about this issue of of technologically possible uh, versus economic, which I think is a really important uh, distinction because economic ultimately means uh, is is a pretty good proxy for what actually promotes uh, you know individuals' lives, whereas the fact that you mm-hmm. can. That you can get some sort of physical outcome in a lab means absolutely nothing by itself if no one can afford it or if it's used as a pretext to destroy what people can't afford. But even there, I've Mm -hmm. thought, so I used to say, okay, well, it's not the same kind of problem. And yeah, you could theoretically, I mean, you can't say you can't do it, but it's worth thinking through, I think, in practice, what it would mean, what it means to do something incredibly, incredibly uneconomic, what it means uh, to try it. It's kind of like, Well, you know, Stalin can try to feed people using his Lysenko policy, and it's not economic. Yeah, that means everyone starves. That's what it means, that it's not. And you could say, well, because part of the problem is your resources are not unlimited. So what it means that it's uneconomic is that you're throwing in um, unbelievable amounts of resources, which have other very strong needs, into this arbitrary project to meet this alleged environmentalist fantasy of a solar and wind-powered society. So let's say you spend eight times more on this system. Well, this is a very big part of the economy. This isn't a small part of the economy. So then essentially you're saying, well, we need to drive the price of every single good in the economy, both because energy is going to be competing for those goods and also because energy is involved in producing those goods more cheaply. And at a certain point, you literally... Starts. I think it's, it's because we have it's, it's kind of like the electricity. Because they do it so well, it's easy to think it's easy. And because we have so much wealth, it's easy to think that it's infinite. But it really, really isn't, which you experience both on the level of you can only afford so much when the price goes up, and then that there is literally a limited supply at any given time of physical uh, resources available to people that can be destroyed.
2: Exactly. I I feel like it's from the point of view of the central planner, or from the point of view of the person writing the study as a central planner. I think they think it's a it's a fun experiment. Let's move some things around. Well, these are ultimately human beings we're talking about. First of all, but second of all, it's not it's not a fun experiment in the sense that yeah, you know, let's say you raise the price of electricity eightfold. That has real consequences. It's not something you can reverse necessarily. Uh, once you go down that path, these these kinds of investments take years. The lead time on, say, build, building a utility-scale plant is years. It's not it's not something you can say, oh, well, we tried that experiment and it worked out terribly, but, okay, we have these coal plants in our back pocket. It doesn't <laughs> exactly work that way. And on, on the other end, it's just, in, even in terms of the broad infrastructure, say, like the transmission lines that you need to connect uh, plants to the grid, it's just, in in that sense, all of that is being built out in an increasing way towards these unreliable sources like wind. And that, I think, will have, especially if you take it to a, a much farther degree, and we're sort of only getting the beginning of it now, but you, you take it to the extreme, and I'm sure bad things are going to happen, but by then it's a little too late. You've already built the infrastructure out in that certain way, and then it turns into sort of the uh, Australian economists, who call it malinvestment. You can't take that back. Those are those are dollars and effort already put into that grid.
1: Yeah, no. The, the you've. Uh, there's. We're always when we're thinking about this. We always have to remember that there's. There is. Everything has an opportunity cost, so to speak. So exactly. if we are messing up, if we're throwing stuff away in in really bad technologies, uh, it's not just the standard. Is not just can we somehow get away with it. The standard is, will this maximize stuff? Because if you think about just something like your 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 growth rate, Eric Dennis is always stressing this to me, like the difference between a 1% increase in growth rate compounded over 50 years means a completely different society in terms of its level exactly. of technology and in terms of something like whether you can get the the cure that will allow you to live 10 years longer. So when we discuss these things, everything is... The mind is unlimited in terms of its ultimate potential, but it's it's. But what everything is limited in the sense of there are only there's only so much wealth uh, that you that that exists at a given time, and to do something that's going to reduce that dramatically should be viewed as at the very least an incredibly suspicious prospect. And yet we talk about mm-hmm. doing things that would dramatically reduce growth uh, as if just, you're just throwing the word climate change around as if it's just sort of a true, oh, it's just growth. And McKibben, you know, McKibben in his book Deep Economy and in his book Earth talks about, about um, you know, oh, we can't have any more growth. And you know, people just review and, yeah, this is a reasonable thing. Yeah, why not? No more growth. Yeah, it seems like we have too much stuff already.
2: Yeah, and sort of the sick irony behind that is we only, have, we only have the time available to do these studies, probably doing a decent amount of uh, your, your writing at night. These people only have the, the time and resources to, to be able to write these studies because we've come so far, because we've gone into this industrial age and everything is relatively easy, but it, then it just reeks of irony because these are the same people using their free time, very comfortable in their air-conditioned apartments, turning around and saying, let's, let's stop the comfort level here. Let's not go any further. When, you know, I, I would say, why not see what we can do? Why not see what the potential is?
1: Yeah, I mean, for most of us, well, certainly for most of us in Southern California, given how much they already jacked up rates or they restrict production, paying our electricity bill is not a fun time of the month and even if you make like a lot of money it's and, and you, then you have a bigger house it's not a trivial thing uh, to do I mean you can easily pay 500 bucks a month um, and you know that that's just you know you wouldn't want and that, that just seems like one thing but of course I mean it is one thing it's a very important thing but then you're the thing with energy is since it's the it's what we call the master resource, the blog that we both write for you know it's it 's the mm-hmm. resource that powers uh, that that makes possible all the others increasing that means everything becomes more expensive and in a shorter supply uh, and increasing the price means that decreasing the price means everything becomes cheaper. so if you theoretically made it cost zero, that essentially means you can produce anything you want so that's. Yeah, exciting. Which
2: percent- yeah but for some reason that's a nightmare for the average environmentalist I, I i can't put my finger on that but uh the the idea that energy itself is bad because uh honestly when when whenever you talk about energy becoming cheaper, it's almost like they balk and they they just think, Well, that's a problem uh you and I probably won't look at that and say This is amazing. we can do so much more because it's it really is the fuel of life it's not it's not just a means to just anything it's really it's fundamentally the means to live your life the way you want to
1: yeah so it's i think it it gets directly into the the what what the philosophy of environmentalism amounts to because they can always say oh yeah we're using too much energy and then the it's because you know because it's causing global warming and then but then that's easy to to see if that's the real motivation so i'll ask okay so if let's say burning coal had no adverse effects whatsoever, physical effects. Would you say, let's use as much energy as we possibly can? Will you join that cause with me? How many will say yes? Very few. Very few will say. Because there's obviously something else, and really I think something primarily about using energy that that bothers them. And that's simply that. I mean, energy mm-hmm. is the means of amplifying productivity. What is productivity? Or creation. Create, I mean, it means... It means taking something that's less valuable to you and turning it into something that's more valuable to you. Well, valuable to you as what? It's valuable to you as a human. And the whole idea of environmentalism is we need to stop focusing on the human as our standard of value and start focusing on the non-human. We have to give uh, non-humanity a value apart from and ultimately above humanity. So the very act of production Mm -hmm. is an immoral act insofar as you believe in a non that the non-human has uh, intrinsic value. So if you just magnify that you say man is going to keep changing things into a more valuable form, that's the ultimate immorality by a non human uh, moral code.
2: Exactly. And especially when you see spikes in production like we've seen with natural gas recently. Uh, natural gas, when it was less abundant, was a little more palatable to environmentalists. Like I, I mean, so, You know the story of the Sierra Club at first on board with na- natural gas, and now they have a beyond natural gas campaign to go with the beyond coal. And it It's kind of funny to me. They, I think environmentalists actually owe a slight debt to natural gas. And I, I have a, a story I, I wanted to tell about. I was following the utility MAC rule, which was the EPA rule that targeted coal plants for the most part and what it was going to do was shut down a bunch of coal plants and most people that were against this rule were talking about reliability and what we going to do to generate electricity and at the same time in almost sort of a magical way it was just really good timing i guess uh there's this new abundance of natural gas and natural gas combined cycle units there's a certain type of natural gas unit that's pretty efficient, and really, compared to coal and nuclear, very easy to build, very fast to build. And it's turning out that instead of being, say, the bridge fuel to wind, and I'm not sure it's going to be that, uh, instead it's been this nice, uh, comfortable replacement, given the low price, it's been this nice, comfortable replacement for coal. So as the coal units go off, because of these EPA rules, long story short, the prices impact, the increase in the price of electricity we may not even feel because the fracking boom basically enabled a smooth transition from coal to gas with, with I can't imagine that the price spike will be anywhere near what it was originally forecast. Uh, something in the, I've read something like 12% range. There's so no way it's going to be that dramatic anymore and what I was Sort of, what I I thought when when I saw the EPA rule at first, I thought this is going to be a disaster. People are going to clamor people are finally going to realize that the EPA is being too strict. Uh, Long story short, I think environmentalists, uh, I think they they owe something to fracking for taking the heat off, because there would have been some heat. There would have been, people would have started asking, why did my bills go up? And they'd have to say, well, we passed this rule that basically close down whatever percentage of coal plant and instead you get the seamless transition. but it was enabled not by any kind of government subsidy or anything like that, but it was it was a fracking boom
1: yeah, I don't think they're too grateful given given the beyond gas campaigns there there's those, those there's this general phenomenon of it's the same ingenuity that allows the businessmen to create the best things under freedom when they have restrictions, there's they still do fairly ingenious things. And unfortunately, people, if they morally don't object to the treatment, people can get the idea that, well, it doesn't really matter. Because look, you know, as there's a line in Alice Shrugged, you know, oh, you'll do something. And that's that's the view of mm-hmm. the energy industry. You'll do something. And then the other thing that that greases the uh, the wheels, I guess, is that It's just the whole morality of it that it's viewed as the right thing. So in California, we have really expensive electricity, but people take it. In Europe, people there's not you know in Denmark super expensive electricity. People take it because they're told that it's the right thing to do, and it's hard to get an uprising for people who believe it's uh, you know when people don't believe that their side is really right it's hard to get them motivated. Whereas my guess is that in places like Kentucky and other places, you've got more of an organic support for coal, and those people would be more mm-hmm. inclined to stand up than, say, my brethren in California.
2: That's an interesting point about paying more for the, the moral source of electricity, because uh, I, I wonder what the threshold is. There's gotta be a threshold somewhere, where even if someone believes they're doing the morally superior thing, you you run up against trade-offs, like, I want to I want to use moral electricity, quote unquote. But all of a sudden, I'm having to make choices between uh, I don't know. My children are freezing at night because I have electric heat, and I'm not sure that I can afford to run it, and things like that. You run up against real world consequences. I wonder what the threshold is. Yeah, I I,
1: think I,
2: I, 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 thought, I, I thought with Utility Max the way it was before with high natural gas prices, I thought Utility Max was going to be a trigger for people to say. I want people to, I I want the government out of my electricity but but not what happened but I do know what the threshold is
1: well part of it part of it we got to wrap up in a minute but part of it is and this is related to the the moral view because a moral view is a, is just a fundamental sort of your fundamentally integrated view fundamental integrated view of what you know is for life and what is against it um what was I going to say about that. Oh, part of how you how you respond to these policies and their consequences is how you perceive the causality of these policies and their consequences. So it's not as if it's just right in front of you. Okay, utility, MAC, rule, stuff becomes more expensive. Now, some things are closer than others, but in general, and Alice Shrugged is again a good example here, the, the people who are selling you the policies as moral also have reasons why it's not the fault of the policies either someone has implemented them incorrectly and the solution is uh you know coming or you know the greedy companies have messed things up and you saw this in california uh with the electricity crisis it's just all all blamed on greed and corporate greed and no one uh, you know none of Mm -hmm. the statists have any uh, responsibility so part of the the job of of our job is, that, is to really make clear, is to tell the true narrative. And that includes the moral narrative of what is you know, really the right course of action and then tell the story of what has actually happened. I mean, you tell it in advance, and mm-hmm. then if it's unfortunate enough that, that the thing happens, you tell what's happening. Because otherwise, the other side does not... Let's put it this way. They do not tell narratives that implicate them as destroyers. I don't think Stalin... Conceded the true narrative about agriculture. I don't think he was broadcasting that around the world. Yes, this is the moral form of agriculture, uh, but it killed millions of people. There's, there's always the same thing that leads you to the policy, leads you to the distortion of the policy, unless you're just, uh, you know, a real kind of uh, follower who doesn't, who's just honestly confused, and then you go to the other side. Yeah,
2: I I, I can imagine. I could imagine that some people would want to get to the heart of it and research it in a way that would get past sort of the, the spin that, say, a politician might put on it. Uh, and I wonder to what extent that would have happened. But this, the, the the fundamental thing that I find, is, is another irony in the, in the energy world, uh, especially with fracking, it really runs counter to the Malthusian narrative. And environmentalists are very keen to point out that, say... Oil is more expensive than it was X years ago. And one one thing that's fascinating to me is to zoom out a little more and say, why is it expensive? Uh, and it's sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy. We want to get off certain types of energy because they're getting more expensive. But what they mean by getting off certain types of energy means banning exploration here or there, banning certain types of production. So it's sort of this self-fulfilling Malthusian thing where if you think something's scarce and you try to get away from it and you pass laws that actually force people to stay away from it, then turn around and say, see, it's more expensive. It's. it's I think it's completely backwards, but that's exactly what I see day in, day out.
1: Yeah, I like calling it the self-fulfilling fallacy. That's, that's what they, they – there are these fallacies, but I do think it's a good – I've become more and more enamored of the, the type of question asking, in effect, is this really the issue? That is, so you're telling me you would be, you'll join the pro-oil camp if the price goes down. Or if it turns mm-hmm. out there's enough for 500 years. Because it really, they, part of what dishonest positions do is they just will gobble up any good, now any, any effective argument in their direction they're not they're not making a really integrated case that if we add up all the facts, then mm-hmm. it inexorably leads to their conclusion. They're usually very vague about their conclusion. They just want you to they just want to pile up a bunch of sort of plausible intellectual junk and then and then say, "Look how much stuff I mean McKibben likes to do this. You know, look how much stuff is in my favor. We're running out of it." It's dirty, and it can even contradict. And you say, well, shouldn't you be happy that we're running out of it? Won't the market then take No, no. It, You know, they, wanna, well, they it, don't want to do that.
2: Yeah, it seems to work really well in the short sound bites. Um, I think it, it breaks down when, uh, for example, when you and I went to the, the climate rally in D.C., when we would engage folks, their arguments would go from they they had so much confidence at first in their arguments, and then we'd start probing we'd start asking questions. Where do you think electricity comes from? What would you do if, say, the wind wasn't blowing and you needed to power something very important, like a hospital, for example? And you ask these hard questions, and you see them start to think about things for the first time. And I think it's—I don't know if it's a groupthink thing, or they just operate in sort of the soundbite world. But I feel like when you when you dive down into the issues and and give people the time to tell you what they really think. Uh, I don't know. You get some bizarre answers, or people actually start to think, and I, I think that's that's what's great about Power Hour. That's what's great about, say, the NASA uh, Resource Blog forum. It's it's a it's a little bit longer. It's a little bit more thought out. You can you can reason through things.
1: Yeah, I mean, you do get those. It's always very heartening to get the the thoughtful reactions. I don't I don't remember any of those. You know, it's it's one thing for people to become a little bit more timid, which is at least. A little bit more respectful that you you have the, I think you have the all time money quote from someone in that clip. I think that that might be the most viewed clip in CIP history. Where you what you went up to the guy and what did I don't even even know if you're speaking in that
2: clip. That was a fascinating one because uh, the person who was filming uh, was actually one of the one of the phones had just gone to the too cold to operate mode. Uh, so she was sort of fumbling with the other phone and finally got it going because we'd already engaged these guys. And they were more than happy to tell us that they were pro-blackout. That was sort of the the thrust of you know the t-shirts that we were wearing. If you were uh, anti-fossil and anti-nuclear, you were pro-blackout. And most of the people we talked to said, wait a minute, that's not right. And back up. And what do you mean? This guy went straight for the absolutely, absolutely I'm pro-blackout. Let me tell you, I don't even... The, the the clip kind of speaks for itself, but the the camera woman said that sounds like suicide to me, and he said, yeah. He admitted that he would rather have a pristine planet with no humans on it, meaning everyone dies, rather than you know abundant energy and human flourishing things things that you and I value that I think all human beings ought to value. But it's shocking when you come across someone who goes right to the heart of it so fast. Um, usually people, I don't know, usually, usually people stop and think about it and, and think, wow, this is, this is really the consequence of what I'm talking about. Uh, this guy had a sort of dangerous clarity of mission. It was just, I, I hesitate to say what you might be capable of, but it sounded, I mean, it sounded just awful. I mean, I, I can't even, I can't even explain it. So I, I didn't talk to him for very long, but it was, uh, it was shocking.
1: All right. Well, on that happy note, we need to uh, we need to wrap up. Uh, but I think you know what we can take away from this is that uh, you know regardless of whether people are as explicit uh, to us or even to themselves about the consequences of certain policies, uh, the fact remains that electricity generation is an enormous achievement. We want to do it as well and as much as possible, and that you know, it's it's a it's an it's an already present danger and a possibly much greater danger to uh, uh, to restrict it. So it's, it's a value we need to take seriously. And uh, yeah, Travis, thanks for, thanks for being on the call.
2: Thank you, Alex. I appreciate it. come back anytime.
1: Thanks again to Travis Fisher for joining us. I thought there were some uh, really, really interesting issues discussed And the one you might have been able to tell that that affected me most was just the issue of what an achievement it is to have a reliable electric grid. And there's this almost perversity. I think that's the word perversity, perverseness. I'll have to look it up. Maybe maybe both are words. Uh, But anyway, I'll go with perversity. This is perversity to things that work really well are assumed to be very easy to do. You often see this in business, if you run a business, which I, I happen to, if you just study it, where there's a lot of people who just have opinions on, oh, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. And don't get me wrong, it's incredibly valuable to get input, but often people commenting on a situation, particularly offering discreet advice, have no idea how difficult it is to just do the baseline things that are that that uh they they the observer uh are taking for granted, and this is true on just if, even if you watch a little seven eleven you know running a business and having studied a lot of business, I just really respect how well a seven eleven runs and when I hear some of these quote unquote intellectuals who talk about how they can reconfigure the economy, I have my doubts as to whether they could even run one uh seven eleven it's it's just really important to take uh, an appreciative perspective on the world. One one really good way of doing that is just studying the history of how things have been and what achievements were required to get them to the way uh, they are now. I'm just I'm just right now, you know, there's really nice weather in Evansville where I am at the moment, and it's just there are cars everywhere, and what does that mean? That just means people can go wherever they want, whenever they want, they can explore all sorts of different aspects of life. And that's really something remarkable and, and really unprecedented, except for the last hundred years or so. And that's that's an achievement. But how many of us thought of that when we stepped in our cars today? Not not many, but if we don't think of that and we don't understand uh, you know, understand the edifice on which this depends. Uh, both the productive ability of the producers and then the freedom uh, which that productive ability depends on, then you know we find ourselves, you know, either slowing progress, uh, destroying progress, or simply not achieving as much progress as, as we could. And that's one point that came up toward the end: is that you don't want to think of it in terms of if we saddle ourselves with solar and wind, will the world come to an end? Well, probably not. but the issue is if we saddle ourselves uh, with solar and wind when it when it amounts to saddling because they're so inferior, or that the fact that we've done it so far, that's making life worse now. That means people are dying earlier who didn't have to die. Earlier innovations aren't being made. There's just this mass amount of invisible destruction. Uh, because you don't know exactly what it would have looked like if you were free to use the best, but you know that the freedom to use the best is so important. So that that applies to everything, and then in this context, it applies to uh, electricity. And with that, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to bed. Go get prepared for my uh, coal talk tomorrow. I hope they tape it. I'm I'm really really excited. I always love getting to talk to industry and. How to be a cold champion? That's definitely, definitely right up my alley, and just to be able to help people who are who are every day they are going to work, and whether people are know it or not, it's so that it, it's it's the reason that you know I can I can plug in my iPhone and know that I'm going to get charged. I can turn the lights on and know that they're going to be on. Or you know, take a more extreme example than a hospital can know that it'll work. I mean these are the people devoting their lives uh, to doing that to really being the fundamental uh, you know power of civilization and they certainly get completely uh, mistreated for it and so I think it's it's exciting to be able to to give give them a way of thinking that I think will, um, you know, make them even appreciate their work even more, although coal people tend to be the most appreciative of their work, I think. Um, but particularly, I think there's a lot of leverage in giving them better arguments, better ideas uh, to deal with attackers, and also to, to motivate and inspire supporters. so I'm really excited about that. And that'll be it for this week, as always. If you have questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, email me at, at net. Next week, we'll be back with another great guest, another great topic, and possibly one of the biggest announcements in Power Hour slash CIP history. It's not a Power Hour announcement, but it's a CIP announcement. I think it'll be next week, so stay tuned for that. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been
0: Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.